Um, guys, how are y'all doing? I hope I hope y'all didn't get too wet, but I heard it coming down when we walked out of first service. It was it was pouring. Um, oh man! All right. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jeff. Uh, my beautiful wife Jessica and I we are the youth pastors here, and I get the privilege of being on an absolute rock star team of teaching pastors. Um, and I get to bring the message today. We're gonna be in Genesis 26, so you're welcome to read the Sky Bible, or you can pull it up on your on your phone. Um, or you can, if you have your actual Bible, we're in Genesis 26. Um, before I jump into that, I just want to tell you, if you, you are new here and you don't really know me, I want to tell you a few things about me. If you've ever heard me, uh, ever heard me preach, you know that a few, tr- few truths about me. Um, one, that I'm stubborn. Two, that I have a few irrational fears. I mean, I think Heights is fairly rational. Who wants to follow their death? No one. Um, that's pretty rational. Um, and, and three is I have two amazing babies. Um, and yes, Lynn is not a baby anymore. I don't care. She's a baby. Okay. Um, she was here first service and she was trying to tell me something while I was saying that part. Um, but yeah, so I have two babies and I don't think I've ever preached at least a Sunday message without a story about one of them. Um, and we're not going to break that streak today. So let me tell you a story uh, about something that happened with London uh, not too long ago. So to tell that story, I need to give a little bit of context to it. Okay. Um, so a few of you guys know, especially youth, y'all know I, I stream on Twitch. That's one of the ministries that I have is that um, I play video games on the internet. It's a weird thing to do, but we do it. Um, and it's actually a ministry. God has actually brought something that I genuine, genuinely enjoy doing um, and has been able to show me how to make it into a ministry. And so at the wee hours of the night, I'm online playing games and talking with gamers and sharing the message of God's love with a community that, that has vastly rejected it. Um, and we've just seen so much fruit, honestly, from it. We, we've, had, um, we've had members of that community actually come to church here with us on Sundays, drive like two from two hours away and come to church with us. We get to share the message of God's love. We get to pray with people. We invite them back to a community of believers so their questions can be answered. Um, we have discipleship and evangelism, everything kind of right there in one place. And it's just, it truly is a blessing that God has allowed me to do that. And so, so I say that so you don't think too bad of me about when I tell you I play video games. Um, so I, I do play video games and London comes in and I play on my computer and also work on my computer. I do a lot of design and sermon prep and stuff like that at my home computer. And London loves to come and sit on my lap while I'm doing this. Um, and, and sometimes when I'm playing a game, you know, it won't go favorably for me. And, and I have this thing that I do. I've watched my streams back. Um, I always say, oh, come on. Just, just like that. And, uh, when things don't go well, it's most of the time. And London likes to sit with me and play these games and she'll be, a uh, She'll be sitting there, and she'll be sitting there really patiently for a moment. But have you ever uh, put a four-year-old in front of a bunch of buttons and told her not to press them? Yeah, y'all know, y'all know how this story goes. So she'll be sitting there, and then after a couple minutes, I hear, and I see my guy like bouncing all over the place. I'm like, what? What are you doing? No, no hands, no hands. And uh, same, I'll be up there working, doing something. All of a sudden, I'll hear tap, 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 tap. So I eventually got her her own keyboard. It's actually an old like Dell wireless keyboard. I didn't tell her this in first service because she was here, but it doesn't even have batteries in it. It doesn't do anything, but she has this little keyboard and she loves to work. And, and so you'll find her at her little trolls table with her keyboard sitting up there, her sitting in her chair and just pecking away at that keyboard. And uh, I'll walk up to her and be like, hey, London, what are you doing? She's like, leave me alone. I'm working. I'm like, my bad. Um, and she loves to go, she loves to sit at her little keyboard and, and peck away and, and work. And one day I was coming around the corner and, and I heard her in there just banging away on the keyboard. And, and I walked around the corner just in enough time to hear her go, oh, come on. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if I'm proud or disappointed I taught that to my child. I suppose I'm glad I don't say anything worse than that. I suppose that's what I'm glad about. But 
she takes after me. And if y'all know Lennon, she is a daddy's girl through and through. And Shepard seems to be a mommy's boy through and through. Um, but she, she does. And, and, and I mean, both of them, like Shepard is even, he's getting to that, to the stage of kind of mimicking. He's about four months old. And so he'll, he'll reach at your hands and he'll try to like mouth stuff that you mouth now. And, and London definitely is that anything you do, she'll do anything you say, she'll say she gets her wordings and her actions and her phrases from us. And, and so I actually want to make that a disclaimer to all my parents, your children will act like you. They'll think like you. They'll say what you say. They'll handle their emotions, their anger. They'll handle their difficulties. They'll handle their jealousy. They'll handle it like you. Even as teenagers, I know y'all don't think so because they pretend like they're not looking, they're not paying attention, they don't care. They're still watching. I see it every week. Children will innately act like their parents. They will eventually grow up to become like their parents. And something Jessica and I have been saying since London was born, and I'm sure we stole it from somewhere, but... It's that your sons will grow up to be you, about fathers. Your sons will grow up to be you, and your daughters will grow up to marry someone like you. Does that make you happy? If not, be better. Be better. I mean, I, I, it, it's really a very straightforward point. Look at your life, the way you live, the actions you take, the decisions you make, the way you use your words, the way you express anger, the way you express uh, disappointment, if your child grew up to be exactly like you, would you be pleased with that? If not, show them something different. Because they will grow up to be you. And I have to remind myself, and thankfully, Jessica found that quote, I don't know, shortly after London was born, and every time I make a decision, I'm thinking, would I be okay with London marrying a man like me? Because I want to be a man that I would be proud for her to marry. I want to show her what a good man looks like. And so I do that in my everyday actions. And also, parents, just another disclaimer. We may have your kids for like two hours a week trying to tell them about Jesus, but the ultimate reflection of a relationship with God is coming from their household. And so I beg you, pray with your children. Go into the word of God with your children. Sit down and have open conversations about God, especially in the midst of hardships, in the midst of the passing of a loved one, sit down and tell them how to handle that and how to love God through it and how to see God in the midst of tragedy because they're only learning that from you. Show it to them. Our children will take after us. They will essentially become us. So we should become someone we want them to be and show that to them. I say that because we're about to read in Genesis 26, a son who takes perfectly after his father. And so I've titled this sermon, Like Father, Like Son. So when we read in Genesis 26, you'll hopefully see the parallels between the son named Isaac and his father, Abraham. Um, two big names, and we'll discuss what all happens and, and, and what goes on. So let's just, I'm going to read the very first verse here in Genesis 26. And it says this, now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, pause right there. Quick Bible study tip. If you're ever reading in the Bible and it references something else that happened, you should probably go read that. And it might give you a little more context on the chapter. And I found that to be true with this one. It references for a moment, it references the famine that happened in Abraham's time. So if we jump back to Genesis 12, 1, we'll read um, a little bit about what happened. So in Genesis 12, 1, it said, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
So that's exactly what Abram does. This is even before God changed his name to Abraham. Abram goes to the land that God showed him. And while he was in this land, a famine hit. Now, now a famine typically in this season, it means that there was a drought. There was a time without rain. And now Deuteronomy will tell us that where Abraham goes, it's a land of hills and valleys. It's, a, it's, a, it's meadows, right? So the problem with that lies in that there's no standing water. So their survival depends on rain to fall, right? They don't have a big lake to go to. They don't have an ocean nearby. They're in a land of hills and valleys. They rely on the rain to get to feed their livestock or or to water their livestock, and they rely on the rain to grow their produce. Without that, they will die. They don't have, they can't go to Walmart and buy, you know, some some frozen vegetables or anything like that. They, They have to grow it, and they have to live off of that. And so when a famine hits, the rain stops. And God actually, I think it's interesting, was God actually sends him to a land and then a famine hits that land. Now, what I think is interesting is whenever we look at a land of hills and valleys, this land requires faith. Where God has sent them, it requires them to trust God to send the rain. Their survival depends on the hand of God. And so what Abraham does is, in the midst of the famine, Abraham pulls back his trust from God, and he goes to Egypt. Now, Egypt in Scripture is pretty much always used in a negative connotation. So, so Egypt is always considered almost like going back to the world, right? Leaving, taking your, like, abandoning your faith in God and, and placing your faith in the world. Now, Egypt makes sense for him to go there because Egypt had this big river known as the Nile, and it was so large that it really didn't depend on the rain. It would still have water for years after the rain stopped. We'll, we'll find out that in a few weeks about when the rain does stop uh, in the story of Joseph. But he went to Egypt because they had the Nile. And you could always just go bucket out your water out of the Nile and pour it where you want it. But what he has done now is he's left the land of hills and valleys. He's, he's pulled his faith out of God to provide for him. And he's now taken it to the world. And he simply says, I trust the world more than I trust God. And, and while he's there, something interesting happens. He, uh, he meets uh, Pharaoh and he goes in the place and he's afraid, wow, my wife Sarah is so smoking hot um, that these guys are probably going to like kill me. And, and take her away. And so he says, she is my sister. Pharaoh takes his wife, uh, claims her as his wife, and then God sends plagues upon Pharaoh for the first time. And uh, he quickly gives her back and kicks them out of Egypt. That's important as we read on in Genesis 26. Um, but I do want to say for a second that this directly relates to the life of a Christian today that you and I, we have been called to a land of hills and valleys. That as a, as a new believer in Christ, or as an existing believer in Christ, as a follower of Christ, we are called to a land of hills and valleys where we rely on God, where we trust God, we place our faith in God. The, the problem is, is that a lot of times Christians, that's, you, that's me too, I'm, I'm in this too, I'm in this little bucket. We expect that when we enter into a relationship with God, when we give Jesus our life, that, that life is going to be perfect, and that it's all going to be mountaintops, and it's all going to be blessings, and the bank account's going to explode, and I'm going to get that boat I always wanted, and, and there will be no hardships because I'm in Jesus now. It's all good. One day it'll be all good. One day we'll sit at the foot of Jesus in all glory, and we won't feel pain or suffering or depression or anxiety or addiction. We won't feel that anymore because we're going to be sitting at the feet of glory. But right now we're on a broken world. We're on a broken earth that is led by the prince and the power of the air that is the enemy, that is Satan. And he wants to see the Christian be brought down and lose his faith in Jesus. And so while we're on this earth, we will face hardships. 
We will face difficulties. We will face hard times. We will face famines. But our job, our goal is to place our faith in Jesus in the midst of the valleys, in the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the difficulties. It's still to trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And so you and I, we've been called to a land of hills and valleys and where we are waiting for God to provide for us. And that's where we place our faith. The problem is, is when things get hard, we have such a tendency to turn back to this world, to turn back to the pleasures that this world seems to offer, to try to fulfill ourselves with the things of this world. And and friends, let me tell you, this world will never fulfill you. It will always fall short and it will always lead you into a life of destruction. When we try to fill our joy with a bottle or with a pill, it will lead us to destruction. When we try to fill our our pleasures with, with other relationships, it will lead us to destruction every single time. This world wants to kill you. It wants to destroy you and it wants to separate you from Jesus. That is the goal. And friends, don't leave the faith of God and place our faith in Egypt. Don't place your faith in this world. It will fall short every single time. And we see this as soon as Abraham enters into Egypt, what's he do? He sins. He tells a lie. He gives his wife, his one wife, or his wife, he gives his wife to Pharaoh because he wanted what the world had to offer so badly. We will make sacrifices like that when we want what the world has to offer us. But when we live a life for Jesus, when we live a life for God, we will only want what he provides for us. Stay in the land of hills and valleys. The life of a believer is full of hills and valleys. There'll be hills, there'll be good times, there'll be laughs, there'll be joy, there'll be pleasures, there'll be blessings. There'll also be valleys. There'll also be times of hurt and pain and loss and temptation, and sin, all those are very true. But I I think that sometimes God sends famines our way to test our faith. So let me explain for a moment. Faith is like a muscle. I don't know if you've ever been to a gym. I try not to go, but if you've ever been, you know that when you're at the gym, what you're doing is you're, you're hurting yourself on purpose. It seems counterproductive. But what you're actually doing is you're tearing the muscle fibers. You're tearing them so they must grow back stronger. And you do this repeatedly, the self-torture repeatedly, so that you can have muscle and you can be strong. But it's in the breaking down of the muscle fibers that it comes back stronger. Faith is a muscle. It has to be used. It has to be broken. It has to be, be torn for it to grow back stronger. And so I think sometimes when we're sitting on hills of blessings, God's like, that kind of faith won't fulfill you. Listen, if your faith is based on blessing after blessing after blessing, when the enemy finally does attack you, it will fall short every single time because there's no foundation. There's no strength in that kind of faith. You have to have a faith that has watched you get knocked down and still look at Jesus. A faith that in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of a storm, when you can't see Jesus around you, you feel his hand working and you place your faith in him. Faith is simply this, it's trusting. I, I talk to so many, so many new believers that, that, that they, they worry about doubt. Don't worry about doubt. Doubt is necessary for faith to exist. It's the same thing, double-sided coin. And I don't know if you've ever doubted God's existence. You've ever doubted that God is good or that God is listening or that God answered prayers. Whatever your doubt is, in the midst of doubt, and faith is necessary. Faith needs to shine the brightest in the midst of doubt. And that is simply this, I trust God. I trust God. I am in the land of hills and valleys. 
the rain's not here. I'm in the midst of a family and it hurts. This stinks. I'm hungry. I can't go on. I can't seem to provide for myself, but God, I trust you. I trust you. You said you'll never leave me, nor will you forsake me. Your word never falls short. God, you will provide. God, you are good. And I trust you. I give you my all. We stay here. We don't move back to the world. The world will lead us to destruction every single time. All right, let's jump back in. Genesis 26, verse two. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. And now we know why he said that. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't go and trust the world. You're in the midst of a famine. Stay, trust me. Don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. Then the men of that place, or when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill him on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Nice thing to say, bad context. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife. I want to pause for just a moment. I've studied this in like every American translation available or every English translation available, and everyone has like a different word for caressing here. And actually, the NIV, I'm not a huge fan of the word caressing because the original language seems to indicate that more of it's a flirtatious manner. So in the King James Version, it says that he's sporting his wife. In the English Standard Version, it's him laughing with his wife. And I, I just think this is a beautiful picture of what relationships should be, that, that they were flirting. And to the extent that Abimelech, looking out his window, not hearing what was being said, knew they were husband and wife. Guys, just so you know, it's okay to love on your wife every once in a while. Uh, just throwing that out there. All right, moving on. Uh, so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, we can obviously see the exact ramifications of of what happens when Isaac follows the actions of his father. Abraham, two, on two different accounts. So I told you about the one where he went to Egypt, said, she's my sister, Pharaoh took her as his wife. Told you about that one. There's another one, the one I preached on last time I was up here. It was Genesis 20. Um, and Abraham goes to Gerar, same place that Isaac's at, goes to Gerar and tells Abimelech, different Abimelech. So Abimelech was more of a title like Pharaoh. This is like a 70-year difference. So it's very likely this is a different Abimelech. Um, but tells Abimelech that she is my sister. Then Abimelech takes her as his wife and... Uh, God causes all kinds of sickness, uh, like d- destroys the fertility of, of his whole household. And Abimelech gives him back or gives her back and then like blesses Abraham and gives him a bunch of stuff. Um, you can see the exact, I mean, literally same place. Now, what I find interesting and disturbing is both of these occurrences happened immediately after a promised blessing from God. God had literally just told Abraham before he went to Gerar that he would be the father of many nations and that he would bless him and take care of him. 
and that he would, he would uh, curse those who curse Abraham. Um, and, and still, Abraham walks into Gerar and immediately tells lies and gives his wife up. We see in this, in chapter 26, Isaac comes into Gerar and God appears to him and says, I will bless you, I will be with you, and I will bless you, I will give this land to your descendants. And yet Isaac walks in with the promise of God. He has an option. He can either act on faith or he can act on fear. And we see in this moment, he acts on fear. He is afraid these men will kill him. How are they going to kill him with God's blessing? I don't know, but he is afraid they will kill him. And you and I enter into these circumstances every single day. We have the promise of God on us. We stand in a land of hills and valleys. We stand in a land of faith and we have God's promises of provision. We have God's promises that he will take care of us, that God will be with us. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be prosperous. This is not a prosperity gospel by any means, but God says he will sustain you, that he will be with you, and that he will never leave you nor will he forsake you, that he is with you. But we get this option, are we going to act out of faith or are we going to act out of fear? And so often in this world, we act out of fear. I can see it in, in simple evangelism today, in which that's just telling people about Jesus, just a real fancy word, makes me sound smart. It's just telling people about Jesus. We see so often that when, when the culture is going against God, Christians cower away and like, yeah, some people believe that. Sometimes the Bible says, I don't know, I haven't read it. You know, like we cower, we act out of fear. When God is calling us to act out of faith, he says that his word will never fall void. If we share our word, if we share the word of God, it will never fall short. It doesn't mean there's gonna be an immediate salvation. I, taught, I showed a video um, to the youth on Wednesday uh, about a young man who was a Muslim and he came in and arguing with Christians and no Christian had ever defended the Christian faith to him until he got to college. And he met a friend, he was actually roomed up uh, with a friend in college who was an apologist, meaning he defended the Christian faith using science and archaeology and extra biblical resources. Um, he was a, an apologist and he debated with him. And, and eventually that young man who grew up a devout Muslim became a Christian and one of the greatest Muslim apologists. So he, he, he defended Christianity to the Muslims to ever, to ever live. And it wasn't an immediate salvation. They debated for years. But the word of God never falls void. The word of God never falls void. So Christians, my call to you is to stand up, live out of faith and not out of fear. Don't be afraid to express the word of God. Don't be afraid to stand on the foundation of Jesus. Don't be afraid to tell the world about what you believe and what you stand for and who you stand for. He is on your side. He is on your side. We see in this moment with Isaac that he has an option. He can either act in the way of his human father or he can act in the way of his heavenly father. And in this moment of fear, he acts in the way of his human father. And so, fathers, for just a moment, I want to talk to you guys. Mothers, you're absolutely amazing. You're blessings. You're beautiful. You do so much. You're incredible. But I want to speak to fathers for just a moment. Because if we look historically, fathers seem to have this, I'm just going to call it alpha male syndrome. It's where we have this idea that we have to be, you know, super manly. And, uh, you know, we just, we make the money and we fix the car. That's about it. Right? We, I'm not saying that's not part of it. But if that's all we do in our family, we have fallen short. If that's all we do in our family, we're not doing enough. Our children at home are dying for our attention. Our children, I guarantee your children would prefer an afternoon of your undivided attention over everything on their birthday list. 
Children are dying for the attention of their fathers, but for so long, fathers have just said, no, I just, I work and I make the money. She cooks and cleans and takes care of the kids. We are doing our children a disservice if we are not actively in their life. And I'm saying actively in it. We're rolling around in the floor. We're teaching our daughters how to spin for dance class. Like we're holding little pink shoes and we're helping everywhere we can. Drop the alpha male crap. It's useless. It doesn't make you more of a man. It makes you less of a man. I believe that a man will get down on the floor and play with his children is the manliest man I know. So I want to drop the alpha male. You save that for work when you want to show off to your friends. But when you're at home with your kids, you play, you joke, you laugh, you dance, you sing, you tickle, you be there and you be important in your child's life. You absolutely matter. If you don't believe me, there's been study after study after study of the effects of a father in the household, of effects of a, 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 um, a close father that's actually engaged with children. Um, so I, I just pulled up a few of the, the statistics I wanted to show today. So children who feel a closeness to their father. So let me remind you, this is not even saying, uh, talking about children who only have a father. This is a child who's actually close, meaning dad comes in and sits down at bedside and talks about the day. Dad goes to the ball games. Dad goes to the dance rehearsals. Dad, dad is close to the child. Children who feel a closeness to their father are twice as likely to attend college. They're twice as likely to find stable employment after high school. 75% less likely to have a teen birth. 80% less likely to spend time in jail. And half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms. Those are incredible. And that's from the father being engaged. The father being present. Father engagement reduces the frequency of behavioral problems in boys while also decreasing the delinquency and economic problems that come from low-income families. Your income is not the problem. The attention you're showing your children is. Give them your undivided attention. Undivided attention. Now, even worse than this, I don't, I don't even know if it's worse. Both of them are, are detrimental. Both of them are an epidemic in, in America, truly. Um, Next is father engagement reduces psychological problems and rates of depression in young women. I'll say this, young women need an active father in their life. They're going to seek that male attention from someone, and you want to show them who they should be seeking it from. Show them what a godly man looks like. Girls without fathers in their lives are two and a half times more likely to get pregnant, um, is teen pregnancy, to, to get pregnant as a teen, and 53% more likely to commit suicide. Yeah, that's terrible. Boys without fathers in their lives are 63% more likely to run away from home and 37% more likely to use drugs. And I actually read one statistic said that, that um, children that run away from home, 87% don't have a father in the household. You are absolutely needed. As a father, don't let this world or anyone else sell you short. Yes, mothers, I love you guys. You do absolutely incredible things but I, we need fathers today in this culture to step up. The next generation needs you. Your children need you. And you actually play an incredibly important role in the spiritual life of your kids as well. If both a father and mother attend regularly, attend church regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers. Now, um, just working in a church, we have studied the decline of churches. Um, as, as generations go on, church attendance goes down. Um, and so this, this number is actually fairly high for the kids in the household to continue attending church as an adult. Let's see what happens if the father, if the mother attends regularly, so comes every single Sunday, 
But the father only comes every once in a while, probably, you know, Father's Day and Easter and Christmas. The father's irregular and the mother's regular, 3%. to 30% decline of their children become regular themselves. Now, if the father is non-practicing, doesn't go to church, don't believe in God, but the mother is regular, only 2% of their children will become regular worshipers. Fathers, you are essential to the spiritual life of your children. And I think you'll see that in this next step. If the father is regular, but the mother is irregular, 38% will attend as adults. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but that number is higher than the first one, when father and mother attend. And I have a theory on that. It's a theory, no science to back it up, but I believe it's because when the father and mother attend, there's often chance that the father's only going because the mother's making him go. Whereas if dad goes, even when mom doesn't, he's committed. He's, he's, he's committed. He's actually praying. He's reading scripture. He has a relationship with Jesus. And actually, the number is even more. If the father's regular, the mother's non-practicing, 44% will attend as adults. That number is insane. It's insane. And in generational and church growth, that's insane. 44%. And, and my, my theory about this is, mothers, don't, don't be discouraged. I think the thing about this is, is that typically, if the father is regular and the mother is non-practicing, he is committed. Like he's probably teaching Sunday school. He's probably praying with kids, reading Bible stories to them. He's like, he's in it. Whereas oftentimes, the moms can go to church, and, but the father still dictates what happens in the household. And, and so they're still following their father. And so what I want to say to you dads out there, show your children who they should become. Show your children how to love Jesus how in the midst of darkness, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of problems, and in the midst of life, show them how to love Jesus. Be committed to church. It's not enough just to come every once in a while. Show them what a commitment to Christ actually looks like. Show them how to follow Jesus. Show your children what you want them to come, and you be it. Love your kids like that. All right, let's continue reading. And I did want to say that's, I'm, I'm talking to fathers, biological or not. If you are a male role model in a child's life, you need to show them how to follow Jesus. All right, verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land in the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. Now, I just started gardening and I'm looking to get about threefold is what I'm hoping. <laughs> but, but like 30-fold is considered, considered good. Um, especially in this time, but Isaac reaped a hundredfold during a drought. That's what you call the, the, the hand of God on someone. A hundredfold in a drought. All right, so verse 13. The man came rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. They don't work very good when you do that. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. And I just want to throw this out there, that, that sometimes when you have the blessings of God on you, you're going to, have to get the hatred of people. Sometimes when God is watching over you and he's protecting you, he's taking care of you and his hand is on your life, people who don't know him aren't going to understand. And that's okay. Don't let that discourage you. Let it propel you forward, okay? Verse 17, so Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham had died, 
and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of, those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. So he named it Asek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Setna. And he moved on from there and dug another well. And so no one quarreled with him. And so he named it, gave it the name Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in our land. From here he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will give increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And then Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, yep, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces, Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? And they answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. So we, uh, we saw that God had blessed you and we wanted to protect your butt. So we came over here to try to make an agreement with you. Uh, let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. And verse 30, Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank early the next morning. The men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac went away or then Isaac sent them away on their way and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. And they said, we found water and he called it Sheba. And to this day, the town is known as Bear Sheba. So a few interesting things happen here. Obviously, he has the issues with the wells, with them coming and, and contesting the wells and him kind of just giving it up to him um, until he gets his own. Um, and, and then we see that he enters into the land of Beersheba. Now, this land is, is important because this land is most likely where Isaac was raised. This is where Abraham um, lived for a good period of time. He, he did well there. Um, and so this is probably home to Isaac. And, and so what we see in the life of Isaac is we see that he's in a land, right? He's sent to a land that God had called him to. A famine hits, a hardship hits. And so he goes, and, and clearly he had the ideas of following, following his father's footsteps of going to Egypt. God told him not to go, but to stay in Gerar where he was. And he stayed in Gerar for some time. Um, and so, so long that he had, I'm assuming, multiple gardens because he had multiple uh, livestock and he had servants and he had gotten incredibly wealthy there all the way until the, the people of Gerar, the Philistines, they sent him away He'd gotten that wealthy, so he'd been there for a period of time, and he sent him away, and eventually he finds his way home and begins to worship God. And I think this is important in the life of a believer, because so often we're in the midst of a hardship, and, and we walk away from God, and, and, and this can be consciously or unconsciously, but eventually we start to stop reading our Bibles, and we, we, we stop praying, and we stop living a life to God, and we start saying things that we never would have said two weeks ago, and, and anger comes over us in ways that we never thought it would, and we start to react and act in a way that isn't necessarily honoring to God, and, and we slowly but surely walk away from God, walk away from the land of the hills and valleys, and walk toward Egypt, and we take over what this world has to offer us, and we indulge in the pleasures of this world, and inevitably they fall short. And I believe sometimes when we're in this world, things aren't going to go well. Actually, I, I, I lied. I believe all the time when we're in this world, things aren't going to go well. But I believe despite what we, we experience, whether it be grief or anxiety or anger, if it leads us back home to worship God, it was all a blessing. 
If the problems of this world lead you to Jesus, it was a blessing. And so I believe that we're going to go through some things, but it's going to grow us closer to Jesus. And I believe right now God is calling all of his children home. Whatever you're facing and whatever you're going through, whatever life may look like right now, God wants you to come home. Leave Egypt. Leave this world. Quit depending on the pleasures of this world. Quit thinking that if you have enough money or if you you have enough things or if you have enough women or you have enough own, if you own enough things that that's going to be enough, it will never fulfill you. This world has always fallen short, but yet it tries to sell you on every new thing that comes out. You ever wonder why when you get a new iPhone, you want the next one? It's because it was never enough. And nothing that you commit your life to in this world will be enough. Only Jesus is enough. Jesus is the only thing that can truly fulfill us. That's why nothing we own or nothing we get or nothing we go through ever satisfies us for long. It's because it can't. The only thing that can fulfill us is a relationship with Jesus. And so I spent some time thinking about this chapter. It was an odd chapter. If you, if you look through scripture, we see so often we see um, it mentioned the God, of, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And these are three essential patriarchs of our faith. Yet we have, I believe it's 13 chapters about Abraham. We have 11 chapters about Jacob. And we have one chapter about Isaac. He was the son of a great man, and he was the father of a great man. About all we know about Isaac is he was the son of Abraham. He was nearly offered as a sacrifice. And he fathered Jacob and Esau. This chapter is all we have in his life. And I started to look at it. Why? Why was this included in Scripture? What does God want us to take away? And as I read it, I realized what it was. It was the movement of a promise. God had laid his promise on Abraham. And then he had, when Abraham died, he said, My promise isn't dead with Abraham, but I'm passing it to Isaac. And then that that promise we passed to Jacob. And that promise we passed to Judah. And that promise we passed to to his son and his son and his son. And for generations, the promise will move forward through the lineage of Judah until one day God will come down in the flesh as Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph, of the lineage of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he would come and he would fulfill the promise that Isaac's descendants would bless many nations. And through the death of Jesus, the world will be blessed. And this chapter right here is talking about how that promise makes its way through history until it comes to Jesus' death. And then it goes to 11 men who go out and preach the gospel. They tell people about how Jesus loved them and what he did for them. And lives were changed. Do you know that? Lives were absolutely changed. It started with 11 men and it spread to over 4 billion. Lives have been changed over and over and over. And that promise carried its way from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to Jesus, to you today. The promise was fulfilled by Jesus. And he's opened it up to you. That if you want to enter into that promise, if you want to be saved, you say with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And as I close, I want to share a story. I read this week, uh, a couple years ago in Colorado, there was a police officer who died um, in the line of duty and he had two young sons, uh, Chase and Tanner. And as you can imagine, as young boys, they were devastated to, to learn of the death of their father. Um, and, and some years later, it came about that his police car that he was driving um, 
you know, when, when, when everything, when he lost his life, uh, was being put up for auction. And they just wanted this last piece of his memory of what he poured his life into. And so they actually started up a GoFundMe um, to, to raise up enough money to go and buy their dad's police car. Um, and it did pretty well. I think it raised like $13,000. And uh, so they went to the auction and, and they started the bidding and the bidding and, and quickly it, it got, got out of their price range. Um, it, it actually ended up selling for $60,000. Um, there's a man named Jim Wells. He walked up to the auctioneer and he got his key. He turned around and he walked up to Tanner and he handed him the key. He said, son, here's your car. And he walked out. $60,000. The son couldn't afford it. So a stranger paid the price for it. That's what God does for us. You and I, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We have made more mistakes than we care to counter talk about. And we are destined to die. God saw that you could not afford the price that needed to be paid. And so he came down and took on flesh and bone, lived a perfect sinless life so that he could pay the price that you could not afford. While you were yet a stranger of God, he died on the cross for you. Too often people think that God loves me and he cares for me when I'm good and when I'm holy and when I got my stuff together, when I attend church and I stop cussing and stop drinking, then God will love me. No, while you were an enemy of God, he died on the cross for your salvation. God looked down and he loved you. He looked generations away and carried a promise through the years so that he could die on a cross so that you could be saved. So that you couldn't afford it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't be good enough. But he laid his life on a cross and he shed his blood and breathed his last breath so that he could die and pay the payment for sin, which is death. So that you could enter into eternity with him. So that you can leave the land of hills and valleys. You can leave the death and destruction and the suffering and the addiction of this world. You can leave it behind and you can spend eternity in glory with Jesus, singing praises to the almighty God. One day at the end of this life, we will leave behind us all the pain and suffering and we will enter into eternity in his presence. We'll enter into eternity in perfection and all because he saw us and he knew we could not afford the price. And so he went and bought the keys to eternal life and he brings and hands them to you. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, I love there's a comma there, not a period. The wages of sin is death, comma, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. He bought the keys to eternal life and he's handing them to you today. And he says, all you have to do is accept the gift. Say with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord. Turn away from this world, turn away from sin and follow him. And you now have eternal life. Let's all bow our heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never accepted that gift or you don't know if you have, and you feel God tugging on your heart today to accept those keys to eternal life. If that's you and you wanna make that decision, you can change your life and it's incredibly easy. Jesus says, the Bible says, if you believe in your believe in your heart and say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So if that's you and you want to make that decision, I want to give you that opportunity right here today. I'm going to count to three and I want you to like raise your hand up and you can put it right back down. And then I'm just going to have you repeat a prayer after me. If that's you and you want to make that decision,
you raised your hand or you didn't, but if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, pray this to Jesus. Today, I accept you as my Lord and as my Savior. I know I've fallen short. I know I've messed up. I know my life hasn't been perfect. But Jesus, I know you love me. I know you died for me. I know you are the Son of God. You paid the price I couldn't pay. I know that you rose from the dead and defeated sin and death. Today, I give you my life. I turn away from my sins, and I follow you the best I can. Jesus, today I trust you. I give you my life. Now, I just want to pray just as, as everyone in the building. Father, we thank you so much for everything you do for us and you do through us. I pray that you do with each and every person here on know God. And, in this time we're in, there's a lot of hatred, Lord. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, problems and disunity, God. I just pray that we could be unified for your name. Father, I pray that we as Christians would go out and be known by our love. God, I pray that we would go out and show your love and show your word to the world, Lord. That, that we would go out and not act out of fear, but act out of faith. Not be condemning, but be loving, Father. I pray that you be with each and every person here. Each and every person is facing a hardship in life. They're going through a storm. They're going through a pain. And Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit. You are our comforter, our Jehovah Jireh. You are our provider, Father. I pray for your hand to be evident and to be noticed and to be seen in the lives of everyone here. God, we ask for you to help us, you to lead us and to guide us. Father, I pray for anyone who, who gave their life to you today, Lord, that they would draw close to you and, and live a life in pursuit of your word. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.